Hello there, it's David Vaucher of the Real Time Show's resident provocateur back with another article meant to push your horological buttons. And today I will be doing some pushing because I am talking about two of the Swiss watch industry's most storied brands. Kind of the same, kind of different. Certainly when we look at trajectories, products being offered, and future path forward. I'm talking about Omega and Longines. Let's just get right into it. Via a combination of excellent products and stratospheric marketing budgets, several brands have rightfully become benchmarks in their respective price brackets, as well as permanent staples in the watchmaking and sometimes mainstream press. You've probably already thought of some of these brands, Rolex, Patek Philippe, Breitling, and of course, Omega. What about Longines? Historically, one hasn't heard that much about Longines, relatively speaking, of course, even if I'm pretty sure most people probably would be able to associate the brand with premium watches. It's like they've always been there without being there, if you know what I mean, content with quietly selling truckloads of mid-priced dress watches. That has changed almost overnight, at least when one considers how things usually move in the Swiss watch industry because Longines keeps popping up on my various feeds, and with good reason, I think. They have been on quite a bit of a tear lately, haven't they? In its latest half-year report for 2023, the Swatch Group claimed a year-over-year 11.3% increase in net sales, citing the very successful, paraphrasing of their words there, development of retail sales at Swatch, Longines, and, as you might expect, Omega. And Harry Winston, that's a bit of a surprise to me, but I think I'll save that for another discussion. Anyways, this makes sense to me because while the Swatch Group possesses heavy hitters such as Tissot and Hamilton, if you ask me who the true star players are, my instant answer would be Omega, followed by Longines, owing to my understanding that it's a big revenue driver in Asia, a key territory for any luxury brand. What I find striking about seeing those two names put together are the opposite trajectories both brands seems to be on, and I'd like to explore that opposition today. So, let's call this an analysis of the Alpha and Omega of the Swatch Group. Before I jump in, I'll say that as much as I try to base my views on data, there just isn't that much to go on here, Swatch Group secrecy and all that. For this article, I have to base myself off of what little I can find online as well as the general vibe of the comments I have read recently during my extensive daily perusal of watch news. For Omega, that vibe has been, to me, kind of negative actually, or at least uninterested. That seems like such a misguided characterization when you look at the brand's achievements and releases the Swatch Group listed in their 2022 full-year report. The Moon Swatch, the Chrono Chime watches, the Mars Timer, the Speedmaster 57, and an updated DeVille, among others. But, and this is where I get controversial, I don't think you can really count most of those when looking at Omega's trajectory as a mainstream entity. First, the Moon Swatch, as incredible as it was, is not going to be around in 50 years, and already, especially with the numerous limited editions Omega has already released, you can feel the air leaking from that balloon. Second, the Chrono Chime watches, spectacular as they are, and they are spectacular, are a niche product for a niche audience. And third, the DeVille dress line is, in my mind, also a niche line. It is not an icon like the Speedmaster or the Seamaster 300 meters. That brings us neatly to where Omega seems to be flailing, the crucial bread and butter lines that should ideally excite watch nerds while still selling by the truckload to the general public. 
but which currently serve to blunt the achievements I just listed. The aforementioned Speedmaster and Seamaster lines, the Planet Oceans, and the Aqua Terrors. The 3861-powered Speedmaster Moonwatch update was undoubtedly a success. There's no doubt about that. But that was almost three years ago. Recently, there was the Speedmaster Super Racing, featuring some quite exciting tech in the spy rate regulation system, but coming in at 44.25 millimeters in diameter. That's significant because while it's in line with many other Omega watches, well, it's in line with many other Omega watches. I'm a huge Omega fan and have previously given a pass to their larger sizes, but the diameters and thicknesses that seem to feature in every new model announcement are leading some in the watch community to ask if Omega is truly paying attention to what the market actually wants. Though, granted, we do often have to separate what watch lovers want from what the general public wants, which may in fact be larger sizes. I would love to see that data if you want to share it with me. Case in point, just recently, Omega announced a new ceramic planet ocean with a titanium movement. Awesome, right? Well, turns out it's 45.5 millimeters and eye-wateringly expensive. Both facts which I know raised more than a few eyebrows. Same goes for the Planet Ocean Ultra Deep Line, which offers watches that, while again technically very impressive, are correspondingly huge and are not realistically going to sell in huge numbers, especially with Rolex and its Sea Dweller and Deep Sea becoming, at least anecdotally, more available now. If you look at the Aquaterras, the 38mm size is fine, but how about a return to the 36mm option of old? The shades option seems to be well received overall now, but why did it take so long to get from the announcement to AD's windows? And then there's the Seamaster 300M, which still seems to be selling like crazy, and with good reason, it's hard to find a better dive watch for the money, but which also stands to become diluted and confusing given the many different configurations which seem to appear almost monthly. That's a danger, because the 300M, rightly or wrongly, tends to be cross-shopped heavily with the Rolex Submariner, which is by comparison a very tight model line. Turning to all the lines, how is it that one of Omega's biggest recent announcements was a refresh of their models, which was basically a new dial color and a solid case back? With all that said, if I had to summarize my views on Omega, it's that this is an extremely, extremely technically competent brand whose releases taken individually can be amazing, but which, as a company, seems to lack a cohesive direction. And that's not even getting into the recent internal auction scandal. So, that's the literal Omega of the Swatch Group. And now, onto what, dare I say, might be the Swiss conglomerate's new alpha, Longines, or Longines, if you want the French intonation. Wow, do they seem to have turned on the Jets. Yes. This is a brand that I hypothesize could also stand to strategically cut more than a few SKUs. But in terms of new model releases, my thought is that they have been rocking and rolling. You know I love some CEO talk, and the head office is significant at Longines because it was assumed in 2020 by Matthias Breschen from Walter Van Connell, who joined Longines in 1969 and himself became CEO in 1988. That's an incredible career path, and I hope Mr. Von Connell is enjoying his well-deserved retirement. But you have to imagine that some new blood, so to speak, was positive for the brand, especially one like Longines whose heritage and branding, while notable, could easily come across as stuffy. 
Actually, the current reality of Longines couldn't be farther from that. Yes, you can still find attractive dress watches with complications that would cost far more elsewhere. But if that's Longines' past, I wouldn't blame you for thinking it was eyeing Breitling to set a course for its future. Indeed, the Spirit Collection just seems to be getting better and better. It started in mid-2020 with 40 and 42mm watches in steel, which I liked very much. They looked well-built and were designed in such a way that they could fit almost any description, from vintage-inspired pilot's watch to modern-day field watch. Since then, the line has quickly grown to include titanium watches, flyback chronograph watches, even true flyer GMT watches in the Zulu line. Talking about the Zulu in particular, they originally launched in 42mm sizing. Watch fans were impressed, but wished for something smaller, and when you know it, there's now a 39mm option as well. How's that for responsiveness to feedback? The Spirit line aside, there have been the Ultracron, the kick in the ass the Hydroconquest line needed with another Flyer GMT complication, and, if that wasn't enough, the just-announced 39mm refresh of the Longines Legend Diver. How's all that for momentum? Granted, these horological goodies come at a price, and Longines watches, while still good value relative to brands offering similarly specced models, are noticeably more expensive than they might have been even just a few years ago. For instance, the Spirit Flyback Titanium has an MSRP of 5,400 euros on a strap. These price increases have to be mentioned, and while I've deliberately talked about trajectory for both Omega and Longines, so far only in the context of products, price-wise it does seem like the Swatch Group has a path in mind for both brands as well, with Omega presumably trying to chase Rolex further up market and Longines following behind to fill the ensuing vacuum. There's always a danger when trying to make this move. I mean, think of the criticism Seiko still gets for not offering SKX pricing on new releases that run circles around that model. But to me, whereas Longines seems to be soaring into its new role, the indicator lights are blinking yellow for Omega. I'm not in any way saying that Omega is in danger of disappearing completely. But obviously, the watch industry as a whole is stronger when everyone is firing on all cylinders. And while Rolex will never admit it keeps an eye on competitors, I do have a feeling that a strong Omega also means a stronger Rolex. So in the end, consumers win. My two cents? Omega might consider trying less to impress everyone with its technical prowess. They don't need to. It's already crystal clear they are an engineering powerhouse. And in my opinion, no one, not even Rolex, industrializes cutting-edge technology while also occasionally offering high horology like Omega does. Instead, if Omega would just start operating in the middle of the product bell curve again, notably with less high-performance, but crucially, smaller-sized watches, it would paradoxically find itself moving forward on another bell curve to the most upper echelons of successful watch brands. In the meantime, there are several Spirit models I'd love to check out in person. And that is it for today's article. What'd you think? Do you like Omega's larger watches? Or do you think that maybe them sticking to these larger sizes will hurt their business long-term? What about Longines? What do you think of their recent excellent run of watches? Maybe you don't think they're so excellent. Either way, we would love to hear from you and we make it very easy to get in touch with us and the show. I can be reached on Instagram at D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R. Rob can be reached at R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, and Alan can be reached at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can also reach our newest Instagram handle, that's for The Real Time Show as a whole, and that is the therealtime.show. 
We also love for you to use the show's website and the contact form. The address for that is www.therealtime.show forward slash contacts. As always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. We all really look forward to having you join us on a future episode of The Real Time Show. And in the meantime, take care.